Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now, by the encouragement of the scriptures, which Paul says were written for our instruction, give us hope. A hope that, considered from worldly perspective, makes no sense. Hope against hope. And Lord, would you cause us to experience you, cause us to feel how majestic and powerful and almighty you are and convince us that you are the God who made the world and raises the dead. And Lord, we ask that you would do all this in the name of Jesus for the glory of his name that we might be bold witnesses for him, that we might be faithful to him to the end. We love you and praise you and thank you for your word and for what you've promised to do in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in college, I was an English major and one of the professors was this happy little man who always wore a bow tie and he was always cheerful but there was one day that I was walking down the hall in the, in the building where all the classes of my major were held, and this guy, it was like he was, you know, pinging off the walls. He was so up. And one of his colleagues saw him, and he said, what's going on with you? And uh, this guy, this little man's response was, I get to teach Shakespeare today. And uh, I can identify with that feeling because of the gospel that is before us in Romans chapter 4. This passage is so incredibly good. As, as you turn there to Romans chapter 4, what's going on here is, is Paul is trying to help people understand what the Old Testament actually teaches. Because he has contemporaries, other, other Jewish people of his generation, who have totally misunderstood the Old Testament, and they haven't connected how it is that what the Old Testament says applies in their life. So what Paul is going to try to do is help people to get the Bible straight. And so for us to understand what Paul's going to, going to say here, we need to, to go back and look at some things in the Old Testament so that we get this straight in our heads so that we understand what it is that Paul is, is doing. Uh, but, but before I take you to a couple of passages, I, I just want to remind you again how remarkable this is, that this, this letter that we're reading and, and the dynamic that it reflects. What you have here is a letter written by a guy raised in what we now call Turkey. So you've got this Turkish Jew who is writing to these Italian Christians in Rome, the capital of the world, and he's explaining to them how they're all united to Christ and all, in this passage, reckoned righteous by faith without reference to where they grew up or what their racial heritage was or, or any of the cultural things that might divide us, that, that might divide them in that day, and they don't divide us in, in this day either. So we, we need to get some, some things straight from the Old Testament about Abraham. So the first thing I want to call to your mind is Joshua 24, 2 and 3. You don't have to turn there, but maybe it would help you to look at these verses. And, and, 
And um, as you turn to Joshua 24, I just want to put in your mind that as you think about Abraham, it might be helpful to think of a, a character like the crown prince of Saudi Arabia instead of somebody like us. Abraham did not live in the West. He did not live in the modern West. Abraham lived in the ancient Near East. And, and this passage tells us, Joshua 24, 2 and 3 says, we read that Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we, we need to get this straight in our heads, lest we misunderstand what Paul is saying about Abraham, lest we misunderstand what the Old Testament teaches, lest we misunderstand what Christianity is. Abraham was not a man who had never sinned. Abraham was not a man who had received a certain amount of light from God, and he was responding correctly to that light. Abraham was not a man who was living in accordance with God's principles. Abraham was a pagan idolater. That's who Abraham was. Look at the next words of verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. Abraham got saved because God took him. That's how Abraham got saved. Now, with that in mind, uh, you might... You don't, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you some things, and it might help you to, to look at some of the verses that we're gonna, I'm going to draw your attention to here from Genesis 14 through 16. So I just briefly want to remind you what was going on in Genesis chapter 14, and, and here's where the crown prince of Saudi Arabia thing comes in, because Abraham is like an ancient Near Eastern warlord. He goes to war against other kings. He's got an army that lives in his household. He's got 318 trained fighting men who live in his household. So, so this, is, this is not the way we live, you know? None of us has an army, a contingent of soldiers. That's not the way we operate today. Abraham lived in a totally different world, and we need to feel how foreign this is. We need to feel how foreign Abraham is to us. And then chapter 15, he has this, this stunning vision where God says to him, I'm your shield, your reward will be very great. We talked about this last week. And Abraham says, Lord, you've promised me land and, and descendants and blessing, and I don't have any children. And this guy that works for me is going to be my heir. And the Lord says, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. And, and here, remember, this is a pagan idolater. He's not righteous. And he's not doing righteous deeds. But because he responded to God in faith, God counted Abraham. He reckoned Abraham. He considered Abraham as righteous. So, ancient Near Eastern warlord, who's a fighting man. He, he went to battle... I trust he probably killed people in battle in gruesome and brutal ways to overcome those armies. And then God reveals himself and he believes and he's reckoned righteous. I don't know if your life is like this. The Bible is so comforting. This is how my life feels. Very next chapter, you remember what happens in Genesis 16? The very next chapter, the Lord has just said, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And the very next chapter, 
It's like Sarah comes along and says, hey, let's scheme up a way on our own power to bring about what God has promised. And it's a disaster. It's a total disaster. It, it, she, she sends this slave woman, Hagar, into Abraham. Abraham had slaves. Abraham seems to be operating with Hagar like she's part of his harem. I don't know if there were other women. I don't know. We don't know. He's an ancient Near Eastern warlord who has been reckoned righteous. I hope what you hear me saying is he's not righteous because he's righteous. He's righteous because he believes. And even after the words of Genesis 15, 6 are stated, he blows it. As you read the, the Old Testament, you shouldn't think, oh, Abraham did it, it must have been a good thing. No, that is not the way it works. Moses, I think, is telling us, look at what the righteousness of faith actually is. It's a righteousness where Abraham is regarded as righteous even as he continues to do unrighteous things. Even as he continues to do things that characterize other people who live in his culture. You you, you hear what I'm saying? Abraham is acting like other ancient Near Eastern magnates act. In chapter 14, which maybe that was justified, but in chapter 16, this is just what people in his culture do. And I think this is comforting because because we're, we're guilty of this kind of thing, aren't we? We act the way that people in our culture act with reference to economics, with reference to having children, with, with reference to all kinds of things in our lives. We're not, we're not reckoned righteous because we're righteous. And we're not going to be reckoned righteous because we're righteous. It's, it's faith that is the crucial, crucial thing. And then I, I want to draw your attention to some things. Look at the end of, of Genesis 16. Look at verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And, and then we read this passage. And then uh, look at later down in this passage, um, in verse 17, Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He's astonished at what the Lord has told him. And then verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old. And in the the context of this passage, the Lord had had told Abram, if you look back at verse 21, um, Sarah shall bear to you... uh, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall, shall bear to you at this time next year. So he's 99, 100 years old when, when these events take place. Okay, with this, in, with this before us, these realities about Abraham, we're now, I think, in position to consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. And, and just to remind you of where we are, we've seen Paul in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, talk about how he's been so eager to get to the Christians in Rome, but he's been thwarted and and prevented over and over again. And so instead of him being there present in in person, he's written them this letter, and he's explaining to them how he's eager to preach the gospel. He's unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation is in the message, 
to which people respond to in faith. Uh, to which people respond in faith. If you respond to this message in faith, God's power to save is activated in your life. And the message is the, the, the message, the gospel is the power for salvation. And then in 1.18 through uh, 3.20, Paul explains how everyone's un- under sin. And then in 3.21 through 31, he brings out the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. We saw last week in 4.1 through 12 how Paul is teaching that Abraham was counted righteous by faith. Look at in, in 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, 4.4, 4, you get wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. Uh, 4, 5, his faith is counted as righteous. Over and over again, this language is used. Verse 8, the Lord will not count his sin. Um, verse 9, uh, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how was it counted to him? And then verse 11, it was, so this word count occurs over and over and over again. This word is where we get the word imputation. And the idea is in the Bible, there are three big important imputations. The first one is Adam's sin, which is imputed to us. And then there's, there's, there's your, your, your sin not being imputed to you if you believe. And then, it, then Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to you if you believe. So, so Paul is really dealing with imputation in 4, 1 through 12 and talking about how righteousness has been imputed to Abraham. And now in 4, 13 through 25, Paul is going to, he, he's going to prove that Abraham did not earn this. He didn't, he didn't deserve this. And so to set this up, I'm going to give you an alternative scenario that would explain the perspective, I think, of the people that Paul is in an argument with. So the alternative scenario would go like this. Abraham received a set of instructions that he followed perfectly and earned salvation. Abraham, the, the, the alternative scenario is, Abraham attained perfect obedience and therefore earned righteous status. And then, as, with, as happens with human beings, you start fudging. Because you know n- not everybody's righteous, so he did the best he could. He, he, did, he did as well as could be expected. Well, we know he sinned on this occasion, but still, he responded the right way. He did the right things. But the focus is all on deeds. And Paul is arguing against that view. Maybe you're here this morning, you, you think that way. Maybe you think you're going to accept it, be accepted before God on the basis of what you do. The Apostle Paul is going to engage in an argument with you this morning and try to prove that that is not the case. So look at verse 13 of Romans chapter 4. He says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Let's start with this first thing, the promise. What promise is Paul talking about? I think Paul is talking about Romans 12, 1 through 3, where, where the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And, and then he promises him three things. He says, I'm going I'm to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to bless you. Land, seed, and blessing, he promises. And, and when he promises the land to Abraham, what the Lord is doing, it's like the Lord is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in a project where I am going to reclaim my world. 
And, and so what we're going to do is we're going to establish a beachhead, which is the land of promise. And then from there, my glory is going to spread until it covers the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. Until from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord is, pl- is praised. So I think that's why Paul says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Not just heir of the land of Canaan, heir of the world. Okay, so we're talking about this initial promise. And he says it didn't come through the law. What does he mean? He means Abraham didn't earn this. God did not give to Abraham a test that Abraham passed. We shouldn't think think of the initial call to Abraham that way. Where I mean, sometimes this gets emphasized, doesn't it? People talk about how they want to emphasize Abraham's right response to God, which is it's a good thing to emphasize. But I think we should think of it more in terms of the way creation responded when God started speaking, right? In other words, I would suggest that Moses means for us to understand Abraham responding to the call of God the way that light responds to the call of God when he, when he says, let there be light. It's the same powerful, creative word that speaks things into existence. So verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Paul's been explaining how Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And he's saying, look, God decided to make a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed the promise. God counted him righteous. That's how the promise came. The promise didn't come through the law. Verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Why would faith be null? Well, because these are law keepers. They're they're earning the wages. They're doing the work. They're going to get paid. They don't have to trust. Faith is nullified in that circumstance. And the promise is void. Why? Because because it's just what is due. It's it's what Paul says back there in verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So in in verse 14, if if the promise comes through the law, there's no faith necessary and there's no need to talk about a promise. And then Paul, Paul explains how this could never have been the case anyway. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath. Now, now I think what he's, what he's saying here is he's inviting us to think about the way that law works in, in the human heart. You know, it, it's, like, uh, it's like if you've read the Harry Potter stories and, and Dumbledore says, by the way, the forbidden forest is off limits to all students. And we all know what's going on in the high hearts and minds, of all the students, how do I get into the forbidden forest? That's exactly the way that we respond to to commandments, to prohibitions, isn't it? And and maybe you've read the the Garden of Eden story, and you've thought, well, if there's one surefire way to get them to eat from that tree, it's to tell them not to eat. That's what's wrong with our hearts. We're sinners. I think that's what Paul's getting at here when he says, for the law brings wrath, because we don't keep it. We don't keep the law And as a result, God visits wrath on lawbreakers. And then he goes on to say, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I think what he's saying is, if you don't have a statement that says, don't cross this line, well, then you can't can't have a 
a crossing of that line that constitutes a transgression. And in this case, we're dealing with a promise where God says, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you without reference to whether you've obeyed to this point. You've been a pagan idolater. This is what I'm going to do for you. So Paul's point in verses 13 through 15 is that the promise came to Abraham through the righteousness of faith. And what's what's beautiful about this is that this is why Paul wants to get to, to Rome. This is the gospel that Paul wants to take to the Romans. This liberating message that you don't have to work to earn God's favor. You don't have a standard that you must attain to in order to feel good about yourself. No, that's not how it works. The way it works is there is this glorious God who makes these promises. And those promises will surely come to pass in spite of us, in spite of the way that Abraham is going to live. God's promises will come to pass. So what Paul is saying here is we don't earn our standing with God. And and this is also good news for the church in Rome because as we're going to see as we continue through this letter, there are these racial tensions in that church. Racial tensions that come from the fact that some of them are Jewish, some of them are Gentile. And and they've got very different cultural heritages. And and the 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 amazing thing about the gospel is it, it reveals the way that we don't have the resources to bring about reconciliation, but the resources are there in the promise. The resources to bring about racial reconciliation are in the gospel, which applies to us today too, doesn't it? Because, because we all descend from Adam, and we all get reconciled to God through Christ, and we all get reckoned righteous, not by... Not by Striking the right stances, sounding the right virtue signals, or or saying the right things on Twitter. No, we get counted righteous by trusting the one who promises, by believing. That's how we get counted righteous. And we get empowered to love people that are different from us by the way that we have been loved by this God. In verses 16 through 22, Paul is going to Uh, Having talked in verses 13 through 15 about how the promise is through the righteousness of faith, Paul is going to go into this episode about Abraham believing God's promise. So verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. So he's just said, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he's saying how the promise came long before the law came in. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. So he's saying, look, the promise doesn't rest on a transaction. The promise doesn't rest on people meeting the standard, passing the test, doing the required deeds. The promise rests on grace. God graciously made the promise in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And here I think Paul is reminding us of what he had just said back in in 4, 11 11 and 12, where he talks about how this is not just for the circumcised, the Jewish people who kept the law, but also for the uncircumcised who'd never received the law. 
So you remember Genesis 12, 3, where the Lord said to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. And Paul's expositing this. Paul is saying this isn't just for Jewish people who got the law and kept it. This is for all the families of the earth. So it's not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, and here in verse 17, Paul is going to quote the passage that was read earlier in the service, Genesis 17, verse 5. I have made you the father of many nations. How can Abraham be the father of many nations? Well, if he's the father, the, their father in the sense that he's the father of the faith, and people from all nations who believe this are following in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. That's, that's what Paul is after here. I have made you the father of many nations. And then I think this dash, if you're looking at the ESV like I am, it, it, Paul's syntax is a little bit, it, it's like he starts into a thought, just like I just did, and he pauses it and he goes in a new direction. And what he, I think what he wants to do here is talk about God. And he, and he wants to, to press into us what was so compelling about God to Abraham. So how could Abraham have, have believed this? Well, Paul says here in, in the middle of verse 17 after this dash, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So there are two things that God is described as doing here. Creating, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Light doesn't exist until God says, let there be light. The, the waters are not separated from the earth until God says, let the waters uh, be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. He calls into existence things that do not exist. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that he raises the dead. This is why Abraham believed. Because Abraham encountered God and he became convinced this is the God who made the world and the power of this God is superior even to the power of death. And, and then Paul's going to resume his thought. Look at what he says in verse 18. And, and what Paul's going to do is he's going to start talking about death and how it stood in Abraham's way. He says, in hope, he believed against hope. Let's just untangle this for a second. We got two different kind of thing, two different kind of hopes. I think working here, the the first in hope, I think, is the hope that is responding to the word of God, where God says to Abraham, and Paul's going to go on to talk about how uh, he considered his own body later in verse nineteen, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham's body is as good as dead. Sarah's body is as good as dead. They are infertile. They have, they have passed the sell-by date in terms of human fertility. It's not going to happen. And Abraham looks at this and he says, no hope. But then the word of God comes and it gives hope. And so in hope, against hope. The, the, in other words, the way that you reckon this in human terms, you, you, you should have no hope for this. But because of the word of God, in hope, against 
hope. He believed that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. And there, Paul references a line from Genesis chapter 15. You remember? Uh, this man, Eliezer of Damascus, will be my heir. No, this man shall not be your heir. Go outside, number the stars, so shall your offspring be. As, as, as numerous as the stars of heaven. Then Paul says in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he, he grew strong in his faith. Another way to render this, that, that line, he grew strong in his faith, you could, you could translate this, he was strengthened in faith. He was, it's like he was empowered in faith. So on the one hand, he's physically weak and incapable of this. On the other hand, because of the word of God, he's being empowered. He's being strengthened because the one who has promised is that compelling. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There are so many applications of this reality to our lives. If God made the world, can anything stop his purpose? If God can raise the dead, will he ever be thwarted in what he sets out to do? This is, this is why... People go to the nations knowing, you look at this in human terms, they have an overwhelming cultural heritage. Everybody in their culture agrees with them against what we're trying to tell them. But this gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It looks impossible. They're spiritually dead. Yeah. God raises the dead. Maybe there are people in your life. There are people in my life I've been talking to for a long time, and they're dead. God gives life. There's hope. There's hope against hope. I'm sure, I'm sure you know people, and you think it's hopeless, them believing the gospel. It looks hopeless that they're going to turn. But there's hope. There's hope because the one who said, let there be light, can also cause the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ to shine in their hearts. This is... Also, why we keep preaching here, because this message changes hearts and changes lives. It's why we keep hoping. It's why we stay in relationships. It's why we don't cut people off. It's why we don't give up and run out of the room. It's why we don't say, I'm done with this and I'm never coming back. We persevere. As I was thinking about this, I thought of maybe you've seen one of those Ansel Adams photographs of this barren cliff where it looks like nothing could grow, and there's this tree that, that has these roots curled around a rock. And this, this tree, that it, it looks like there's no soil there. It looks like there's probably very seldom rainfall there, but there's life. There's life there that is managing to hold on. And because of the Word of God, this is, this is even how, 
how our spiritual lives work. As barren as we may feel, as dry and craggy and cliff-like as we may feel, the Word of God has come to us and life is at work and life is going to prevail. The Word of God is going to prevail. God is going to accomplish what He has started in us. In spite of us, sort of like an ancient Near Eastern magnate receiving these marvelous promises and then going and acting like an ancient Near Eastern magnate, and God is still going to accomplish his purpose through that man. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. When this happens, when people keep hoping against hope, when, when we keep persevering in faith and keep preaching the gospel and keep working at relationships and, and, and stay with it this way, it gives glory to God. Because in human terms, it looks like this would never work. It looks like this would never bear fruit. And what we're testifying is that God can do this. God can and will do this. And he receives the glory when we're fully convinced that he's able to do what he's promised. So my wife told me this morning that there are 15 of these Scarlet Hope uh, gift bags that need to be claimed. And I don't know if you look at that situation and you think it's hopeless for those those ladies, to have their lives changed. Not with the God who raises the dead. Maybe, uh, maybe as you consider the people that have gone out from us, um, this is Amber's last Sunday with us. Uh, the more hearts are going to be going back to Arkansas to return soon. Maybe as you consider these people, you think, you know, that, that just seems like such a hopeless enterprise. How are they ever going, going to accomplish this? Well, they're going to accomplish it because... The God that we're talking about, look at the end of verse 17, calls into existence the things that do not exist, like churches in these places. And he changes people. He changes us. <clears throat> verse 20, 22. So verses 13 through 15, the promise comes uh, through the righteousness of faith, not on the basis of law. Verses 16 through 22, Abraham believed God's promise. Did you notice, have you noticed how often this word promise has come up in this passage? Verse 13, promise. Verse 14, promise. Verse 16, promise. Verse 20, promise. 21 at the end, promised. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because he believed that God was able to do what he had promised. And then verse 23 is beautiful. This is so encouraging. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So Paul is saying Genesis 15.6 is not just written for Abraham. It's also written for us. And he's including the audience of his letter and himself. And the audience of the letter extends to us. Paul is going to say later in this letter, Romans 15, 4, whatever is written for, in former days was written for our instruction. So Paul has been arguing about what the Old Testament actually teaches, and he's, he's arguing it teaches the righteousness by faith. It teaches that people get reckoned righteous by faith. That's what the Old Testament's really about. Look at Abraham. And now he's saying, and it wasn't, it's not just an old history lesson. It's not just written for Abraham, it's also written for us. It's about you. The 
The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Abraham's body's dead. Sarah's body is dead. Jesus' body is dead. And God is the God, verse 17, who gives life to the dead. Now, just a little parenthetical side note here. Um, I think there's a strong connection here between the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of Isaac. And, and the, in other words, the giving of fertility to Abraham and Isaac, whose bodies are as good as dead. And, and it's, it's, it's as though when Isaac is born, Abraham's line of descent, which was dead, it's like it's been resurrected. Maybe you remember this occasion in Matthew chapter 22 when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they've got this crazy story that's meant to make the resurrection look silly. And, and they, they talk about this woman who had these seven brothers all marry her and they all died. And what they're trying to show is how silly it is to believe that bodies are raised from the dead. And so they say, well, who's, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus, for they all had her, that leveret marriage thing, you know. And then in verse 29 of Matthew 22, Jesus says to them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the res resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? When he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, I don't think Jesus is just saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their spirits are alive in the presence of God. I mean, the Sadducees, they believe that people go to Sheol. So they believe that there's some disembodied, soulish, spiritual existence. What they're rejecting is that your body is going to get raised. But Jesus counters them with God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What makes them astonished at his teaching? I think... What makes them astonished is this strong link between the giving of fertility and the resurrecting of a dead family line. The link between that and bodily resurrection. Because Abraham, he was, they were infertile, and God gave them Isaac. Isaac, his wife was infertile too. And God gave them Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob, similar situation where uh, not really having children until the Lord blesses these women. So I think the point that Jesus is making is Jesus, uh, sorry, God gave life to barren wombs, which is the same kind of thing as giving life to a dead body. And everybody gets it. And, and they, they're astonished at his teaching and the Sadducees are silenced. Romans 4, verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now, in verse 25, I'm going to go with the way the New American Standard translates this. The ESV reads, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I prefer the New American Standard here, which says, who was delivered up because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. And here's, here's what I think Paul is saying. As, as we saw in Romans chapter 3, 
God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation. So God is satisfying his justice against sin through the crucifixion of Jesus by means of a penal substitutionary atonement. He was delivered up because of our trespasses. He had to die because God's people were sinners and God wanted to show mercy to his people, but he had to uphold his righteous standard. He was delivered up because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. How does the logic of that work? Here's what I would suggest the logic of this is. Because Jesus has dealt with sin, through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin. Jesus has dealt with sin, so the consequence is nullified. He was raised because of our justification. In other words, through his sacrifice, he satisfied God's justice. He's nullified the power of death, which makes it that he's, death has no claim on him. Death has no power to hold him because he's utterly righteous and God's justice is utterly satisfied. So the consequence is done away with. He was delivered up because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. You know, this idea that... that um, People are righteous by faith. It's offensive. It's offensive. And you can, you can feel the offense in a parable that Jesus told. Jesus told a parable of, of the laborers in the vineyard. These guys who agree to come and work for this landowner for a, a, a denarius. They, they, they've got a certain wage. They're going to work all day. They're going to get the wage. The end of the day, some people haven't been working all day long and and the landowner says, well, come work for me and I'll pay you. And he, they come and they work like an hour and he pays them a denarius. And the people that worked all day long, they think they're going get, to get paid more. They think they're going to earn more. And the guy says, look, this belongs to me. I can give to whomever I please. That's, that's what righteousness by faith is. Are, are you offended at the idea that somebody could make a deathbed conversion? My, my wife went to, to Peoria, Illinois for her uncle's funeral. And um, before her uncle went into this surgery that he never woke up from, he, he spent time with a, a, a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, a guy that really knows the gospel, who had been pastoring uh, Jill's aunt for the last 24 years. And, and this guy, who understands and knows the gospel, believes that Jill's uncle repented and believed right before going into surgery. So, so are you telling me that somebody could live their whole life for themselves and then repent on their deathbed and be reckoned righteous? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. After all, there's a thief on the cross to whom Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That pastor said he wanted to label the funeral sermon 15 minutes for eternity. He spends 15 minutes with this guy, and he gets an eternal reward. If you don't rejoice at that kind of message, I think maybe you might think, well, I'm righteous. I deserve God's goodness to me. And we're not righteous. We don't deserve God's goodness to us any more than Abraham did. This gospel is so good. This is a liberating gospel. 
If we get this story right, if we get the story of Abraham right, if we get what Paul is teaching here right, we'll be freed from all need to justify ourselves before other people, all attempts to justify ourselves before God, and it will make us more loving toward other people because other people won't have to justify themselves to us. We will be able to say, I don't deserve to be loved the way that I've been loved, and you don't deserve this love that I'm showing to you, but I'm going to show it to you. You don't deserve this love. I don't deserve this love. None of us deserves this love. So we're going to rejoice together and love one another instead of, well, when you start acting right, I'll start treating you well. Or if you get your life right, I'll respond with more graciousness to you. No, that's not the way it works. It's not the way God treats us. Fifteen minutes for eternity. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Abraham believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Because Jesus was delivered up because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. Father, we pray that you would astonish us with your goodness and your power. Lord, we pray that you would convince us that you are the God who raises the dead and calls, calls what does not exist as though it does. And Lord, we pray that you would convince us that this power that you exercised at creation, that you exercised in raising Christ from the dead is the same power that's communicated when we explain the gospel to somebody. Lord, I pray that that power would be, the power of the gospel would be at work right now in the hearts of unbelievers in this room. I pray that they would feel all of a sudden an inexplicable desire to turn away from their sin and to trust themselves completely to Jesus believing that you are able and that you will do what you've promised. And Lord, for the believers in this room, I pray that this same power would be at work as we persevere, that you'd give us joy in the midst of affliction and that we would rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.